came out of the mountains to ravage and rape a small mining village. Suddenly, a stranger appeared. And hell followed with him. yippee ki movie fans. We're back with the film Frontier. I'm Felicity. And I'm Clarence. And today we're going to talk about the 1985 Western Pale Rider, directed by and starring Clint Eastwood. Yes, the plot. Perhaps you've heard of him. <laughs> yes, the plot of this one. Uh, a drifter comes to the aid of independent miners struggling against the wealthy Koila Hood and his hydraulic mining outfit. Uh, the miners initially think Eastwood's character is a gunfighter until it's revealed he's a preacher. The miners are emboldened by the preacher, and, and he convinces them to stay on and fight LaHood, uh, which forces LaHood to bring in the lawman for hire, Marshal Stockburn, and his deputies to deal with the preacher. Now, just from that little summary, I'm uh, already feeling a lot of familiar territory for both Clint and the Western. You've got the the drifter coming into town to save the... Right. The small time... The little guy up against yeah. the big landowner, the wealthy, whatever, what have you. It's well-trod ground here. <clears throat> yes, we've seen it many times. Playing the loner coming into town, I've played many times before, but uh, as far as uh, uh, the allegorical style, I like that a lot. Yeah, the High Plains Drifter other films. And that's sort of the thing with the Western. It's The tropes are there... You know the the things you that you always see in westerns, but just how is it handled, yeah. and which makes the difference. Um, this movie is uh, Eastwood's first in nine years since the Outlaw Josie Wales in 1976. Um, his third western as director, his eleventh as a director overall. Um, his other two directorial efforts that at that point had been High Plains Drifter and The Outlaw Josie Wales. This movie is basically a remake of Shane, I mm-hmm. would say, um, with a little bit of High Plains Drifter peppered in, and even a little bit of Seven Samurai just. The way it opens and the the, the gunfighter being brought in and rallied by the you know the small that's a good point of, about the opening I hadn't thought about yeah with the riders coming in mm-hmm. and it's sort of reminiscent of Seven Samurai and like with Shane it's kind of the similar relationship between Shane and the boy and the preacher and the girl although yeah. with this one you have a little bit of a it's a, a lustful yes. <laughs> She has a crush on the preacher, yeah. basically, instead of the boy hero worshipping right. him. Sarah, played by Carrie Snodgrass, who is the mother of Megan, who has the crush on Eastwood. She also has feelings for the preacher, as Gene Arthur did for Shane. True. The uh, the boulder scene, where they're, the boulder you know, is boxed. They're trying to get it out of the creek. Oh, yeah. It's just like the tree stump scene in Shane. I totally forgot about that. Yeah. 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 The Marshall Stockburn... The way Eastwood sort of knows about him and his reputation. I mean, there's more to it than that, but it's sort of the way this sh- that Shane knows of Jack Palance's character, mm-hmm. um, Wilson. And then when uh, Spider, the guy who gets the big nugget, when he's goaded into a gunfight by the marshal, is similar to Elisha Cook Jr.'s scene with Jack Palance, yeah. where he's, he's tricked into pulling on him so they could kill him. And then the High Plains Drifter bit, Eastwood's character, it's sort of strongly hinted that he may be a ghost as... In High Plains Drifter, his character was sort of an avenging spirit. He's almost like an answer to a prayer, a literal prayer, Mm -hmm. in the opening of this movie. And just to set the record straight, I guess, Clint said that he's out and out a ghost. He did, okay, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I think it's still up to audience interpretation, but according (laughs) to the man himself. Right. Well, we see at one point he's he's washing up with his shirt off and you see the six bullet the mm-hmm. ring of six bullet holes in his back that clearly would have been fatal. And which matched mm. the bullet holes that the marshal gets yes, later. Yes, that when he uh, Eastwood gets his retrib- retribution. Yeah, the marshal they they clearly have know each other. The marshal even when LaHood describes Eastwood's character, the marshal he goes, "Yeah, I knew a man like that once, but it couldn't be him. He's dead." Mm-hmm. But then when he sees him at the end, yeah, you realize that they do know you, each other. Yes. You <laughs> 
<laughs> but with or his last words. Right. But there's never any backstory or anything. You don't know no. what happened or what their relationship is. You don't know whether is. he killed him or tried to kill him in the right. past or... I even heard one interview say that he was supposed to be like a father figure to him. Yeah, so. weird, yeah. You can come up with anything these days. <laughs> and Eastwood even wears the same style of coat that he wears in High Plains Drifter mm. as another Echo and rides a gray horse as he did uh, in, in High Plains Drifter. But maybe that goes to the title, Pale Rider. Just to kind of contextualize the film a little bit, um, it made over $41 million at the box office, which was the highest grossing western of the 1980s. Uh, and was one of the first mainstream Hollywood westerns produced after the failure of Heaven's Gate in 1980. Right. Also that year in 1985 were Wrestler's Rhapsody and Silverado. Yes. Which would also kind of give it a little boost. Right. Silverado came out, I think, two weeks after um, Pale Rider in the summer of 85. So that was like really unusual, like two big mainstream Hollywood traditional westerns uh, in the summer. And that was, yeah, it was kind of surprising. I think Lust in the Dust, another mm. Paul Bartel-directed parody starring Tab Hunter wearing a poncho, came out, I think, that same year. Weird. Yeah. Wrestler's Rhapsody, also a parody Western. I think what we're getting at here, though, is that it's kind of a landmark Western Yes. Uh, in our, our history and that it was sort of a defining moment of, is something going to be made of the genre here or is it just going to die? And of yeah. course, it, it kind of led to a little bit of a revitalization. Yeah, and I think sort of a, a, a trickle-down sort of revival because you had Young Guns in the late yeah. 80s a couple of years after that. So it sort of... It didn't cause really a revival, but it showed, oh, the Western can still ha have value. It's a little cat. spark. Yeah, it's yeah. not totally dead. And I think Eastwood was exactly the right person to be able to do that. You sure. Know? And I mean, I think you can trace that back to the original trailer. Warner Brothers will be proud to bring you the next great American Western. Clint Eastwood, Pale Rider. So they're trying to, to build up that momentum. Right. And then... And then in a clip that we'll play from uh, Ebert and Siskel's show, they debate sort of what it does mean for the Western yeah, with yeah. Ebert championing it. He enjoyed the film and Siskel being less than impressed, being less yeah. impressed and thinking, you know, this isn't going to go anywhere. Right. The first Western in nine years from the biggest movie star in the world, Clint Eastwood. We're going to be very interested in how it does at the box office because it'll help them decide if there's still a market for the Hollywood Western. Well, on the basis of this film... I think the answer is probably yes. This is an exciting action picture, and it's also a Western in the great tradition of Westerns. I liked it. Roger, I was disappointed. I um, thought it was very predictable. You talk about the story being predictable, and a lot of Western stories, it's true, are mm -hmm. predictable. Somebody's lost, you've got to go get them back. Somebody's wronged, little guy, you've got to help them. I expect that a little bit more. This film is so reminiscent of a film he made, I think, 12 years ago, called High Plains Drifter, the first mm -hmm. Western he directed where he's playing a supernatural force coming in and helping a town that I was really disappointed. I wanted something more there. The fighting, okay, he can do it very well, and I've seen it a lot. Um, I just had a very flat reaction to the picture. It never got me going. Nothing special for me, and I, w I think that the jury's still out on whether the Western is gonna come back. And Clint even said in 1984 in an interview, it's not possible that the outlaw Josie Wales could be the last Western to have been a commercial success. Anyway, aren't the Star Wars movies Westerns trans transposed in space? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And I think you're right. I mean, you sort of hinted at this, that one, Clint, Clint is the right person to do this yes. at this time. Uh, it's been nine years for me uh, since uh, the outlaw Josie Wales, but uh, I've missed uh, the Western. I've, I've missed uh, not seeing one and missed not being one for the last few years. So I decided I had this script uh, and I decided I'd like to try it. 
no real reason why not to do anything if uh, there's no such thing as uh, to me there's no such thing as genre patterns i think you just try to capture the imagination with a show if if they're going to gamble on anybody it's eastwood who is you know held the mantle of the western since john wayne and i mean he's the, the the only major living star of westerns at this point you know and i think he has a good grasp on what the western is having yes. been in tv westerns and spaghetti westerns right. and I've been a fan of the John Wayne Westerns. Yes. And he's seen that. He's yes. taken a simple traditional plot and sort of revitalized it in the way that, like you can see that Star Wars can do the same thing. Right, right. Like you can see that samurai movies can do the same thing. He gets that this kind of plot can fit in anywhere and will always be popular. Agree. Yeah, that's a good point. This is his most traditional Western, I would say. There's so many, like, cliched, even cliched moments in the film, I think. At one point, uh, the bad guys make the guy dance in the street by shooting in his feet. And uh, Eastwood, when he has the shootout, you know, in the middle of the street with Marshall Stockburn, and he's framed with the mountain behind him. He also, like, shoots the gun out of the bad guy's hand instead of killing him at one point. You know, Coyla Hood's son, you know. So these are, like, moments that you would see... You could see on an episode of Lone Ranger yeah. or something, you know. I do agree. There are all of those moments, which are all cliche. Yeah. But I also think there are some things that sort of turn the cliche on its head. Mm -hmm. Like, I think it's kind of using the stereotypes of the genre to cast Clint as a preacher character. Yeah. Even if, you know, you're not entirely sure. <laughs> you don't entirely buy him. Right, but, right. But, I mean, there's even the quote in the movie that the, the villain was expecting a Bible-thumping Easterner right. with a linen handkerchief. Like, yes, and bad lungs yeah, or something. That yeah, is, it, that is what you expect yes. from watching so many Western movies. Yeah. But that's not what you get in no, this one. No, exactly. And I, I think it's... I, you would never expect Eastwood to just give you a Western that's just cliched and basic. Despite the cliched elements, there's always a twist. And his persona, I think adds a, a different dimension to it. Because he's basically playing another man with no name here. Yeah. He's just the preacher. We never know who he is. No one even asks. Like, I know. no one even tries to. <laughs> Do you have a first name? Do you have a last name? No one cares. No one wants to pry. <laughs> Some called him preacher, others called him gunfighter. Clint Eastwood, tail rider. But yeah, getting back to the Western, like this was, I think, the low point for the genre. Like it was sort of make or break here. And um, this this was the most profitable Western of those four that came out. Yeah, like um, I said, it was $41 million yeah. box office on a $6.9 like million yeah. budget. So that's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And of course, Clint would do Unforgiven a few years later, um, which I think, you know, it's his greatest Western, certainly as director, possibly as star. And I think firmly, like completely cemented him as a great western director mm -hmm. um i think he'd already had that status a great he was already a great western star but i think that the fourth film like cemented his his directorial status in the western and you see in unforgiven as well as this film pale rider that he is trying to make a i think a personal statement in some of the themes yeah uh in unforgiven i think it's about violence right and the state of a western hero right and, and his his persona in particular yeah. i think yeah uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's certainly not afraid to play with his persona throughout his career. You right. see him play all kinds of characters, even though you traditionally think of him as a tough... Tough guy with a gun. Yeah. or something. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, in this one, I think he's exploring uh, environmentalism right. and issues sort of close to his heart in that way. Yes, yeah. I mean, like, the bad guys are using hydraulic mining, which strips the land, and you get scenes of this violent 
uh, water just wiping away the the side of the mountain and trees collapsing and it just looks awful and and, and like the michael moriarty character's way of life is presented as kind of more noble right even if it is more simple right it, it's worth defending yes yeah they they leave the land as they see it you know they're just panning in the water and not not destroying the land mm-hmm. yeah. just to start at the beginning i guess of the film i was really captured by the opening i really found it tense and it, it got me caught up in the, in the movie from the start oh. and i i feel like that's one of the admirable qualities of a clint eastwood film is the how he handles tense scenes yeah. and, and thrilling moments right what, what do you think of that yeah, it's a it's a good opening. I mean, nothing really happens, but it's a tense, exciting scene. Like the they're not trying to kill the miners or anything when they ride in and I don't no, I think it's it's certainly a, a sparking moment for Well, I just empowers mean, the Megan character and Well yeah, what I what I mean is um it's not really um there's not there's he creates a sense of menace and danger without actually killing any mm. people like he kills the dog he kills a dog, <laughs> he kills a dog and a cow yeah. they, the bad guys kill a dog and a cow but they're not actually physically harming the the miners you know but yeah. still it's a you know it, it it's an exciting scene and it causes tension and you're you know it puts you on edge when when there's not any human consequences yeah i just think i i see that control of like a stressful scene yeah and the pacing of that as well as like I, I see it in the um in the moments with like Stockburn and yeah and sort of the standoff between him and Clint, that just sort of managing of of these stressful scenes. Are you, you mean like the the scene at the end where they're he's hiding and the deputies are trying to find him around the town or that one or when um he's he's making a spider dance or yeah oh yeah sure in the final kind of like shootout right. scene with Clint yeah I just see that as a quality in Clint's directing over the action I feel like most people look to him for action yeah and that's not as something that appeals to me as much true that's... as the the tense and the thrill right. Where's the hut? That's all right. What is it you want? Yes, Stockburn. Yes. These are my deputies. Gentlemen, say hello to Mr. Conway. I think he I think that's something he learned uh from both Don Siegel and Sergio Leone, yeah. you know, working so many times for both of them. And I think, like, Siegel is good at that sort of thing. Like, I, I see it, sense it in, like, the, the chase elements of, like, Dirty Harry yeah. or, like, Play Misty for me or something. And I feel like is why I don't like as much the sillier Clint films. Because, <laughs> like, it's kind of missing that. I mean... What, the orangutan I, ones? No, I, I love an orangutan movie. <laughs> You know I like a silly movie, yes. but but really I I don't get that aspect of it, even if it is even over um, a straightforward action film. Mm-hmm. I think you need the thrilling side, and yeah. that's what makes like a quote unquote Clint movie. Yeah, not just the action yeah. set piece, but the tension. The, yeah, the, yeah, I see what you're saying. And the timing of it. Yes, and... yeah, yeah. That scene when he, when they make Spider Dance when they all walk out of uh, you know of the office with their long coats i mean that's really it's well done it's a yeah it's, yeah, it's well directed i think intense. it demonstrates like a control and a mastery of how much you can lead your audience yeah yeah and how much you want to show them and the whole the he, whole bit yeah he's definitely a master i think of genre filmmaking mm-hmm. like that yeah and then another moment i wanted to 
point out was for for the, any screenwriters out there, I thought there was a perfectly timed scene right smack dab in the middle of the movie, like kind of a linchpin scene mm-hmm. of the miners making the decision of whether to stay or leave. Right. Like I checked the the time as we were watching it, and it was right in the middle. Really? <laughs> yeah. And so so it really was defining what happens here and what happens then right that aspect of it interested me as well as clint not even really playing a part in this scene he is the titular pale writer he is the director and like by far star of the film and this is one of the most important scenes in the film and he's not even in it that's true i think that goes to that speaks to his i think lack of ego in a certain way as a star he doesn't he doesn't have to make himself front and center mm-hmm. all the time, I think. And like in this movie, he's lit from behind often, and his yeah. face is in shadows, and that kind of plays into the mysterious nature of his character. But also, I think it, yeah, I don't it think shows a lack into, of vanity. Yeah, showing off his face yeah. in every scene. Yeah. Which, for a star-directed picture, yeah, right. like you yeah. said, goes, goes a long way. Right, because he's in charge. He could do whatever he wants. <laughs> right. <laughs> What did you think of the handling of uh, Megan's crush on the preachers with him being so much older? I think she's 15 or 16 in the movie. Yeah, 14 maybe. Four, oh, I think that's yeah. right because her mother was married at 15, she keeps saying. And I think he, the actor Clint, might be like 55 Probably. at this point. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, It worried me at first. Yeah. But I think it was handled delicately and that that particular scene where she confesses her love. Right. I think was handled, again, delicately and subtly. I buried my dog over here. Well, that's hallowed ground, then. I said a prayer for It was after the raid. I prayed for a miracle. Well, maybe someday you'll get that miracle. the day you arrived. I think I love you. There's nothing wrong with that. If there was more love in the world, I'd probably be a lot less dying. The Actually, the... I had more of a problem with the romance with the mother because I didn't think that was developed at all. Yeah. Like when uh, Megan gets jealous of her mother's relationship with the preacher, I like I didn't even see that coming. I thought that was totally out of left field. Yeah. And made me even think that something was cut out or like I'd fallen asleep and missed something, <laughs> <laughs> which could happen. I yeah. Don't know. I don't know if it's just sort of communicated with looks or something that maybe were too subtle or something i'm not sure yet it's not really developed it's just sort of understood by the the end point of the movie that you you know that she has this crush on him or she's interested in him in him as well and then Um, when in their scene together yeah um the carrie snodgrass and clint scene together i didn't buy the chemistry then and it, it all seemed to be based in something in in their history that i wasn't getting and i mean maybe that's more something of his reincarnation like maybe they knew each other in a past yeah. life sort of thing but possibly even... you almost could have cut that scene i think yeah and just you know gotten to the to the shootout and you know. or even that whole sort of plot that the yeah. mother, i mean it's kind of enough to me that megan's into him which think, yeah although i did make a comment while we were watching that i saw a trend in clint eastwood films that Every female in the film has to be into him. Like that is the entire plot of the beguiled is that every single female, young or old, 
is head over heels in love with Clint Eastwood. <laughs> He's Clint Eastwood. Like, what are you going to do? <laughs> like, um, we were just talking about Clint not having an ego, but now but... <laughs> that I think about it... Hmm. There might be a little ego there. <laughs> Maybe it's based in real life. I'm sure... Uh... <laughs> Well, he's had a lot of... Uh, Conquests. Yeah. Yes. Um, and then uh, also talking about the Megan story, the at mm-hmm. the end when he's ridden off into the sunset and she comes riding up and calling his name is another echo oh, of shame. Totally. You know, yeah. totally. Yeah. Yeah. Preacher! 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 We all love you, Preacher! I love that once again, as in Django, the last film we covered, mm-hmm. some poor townsperson just has to clean up all the bodies <laughs> caused by these heroes. Like, that's the real hero. And, like, <laughs> we need true. to give a little, you know, applause to these guys that are cleaning up bodies that are strewn everywhere by our heroes and villains. There must be, like, at least. 20 dead bodies in in that town as mm-hmm. as Eastwood rides out cuz there's Marshall there's Marshall Stockburn and all his deputies and then the five or six guys that work for La Hood that he kills in the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, it's a lot of it's a lot to deal with. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even one undertaker in town, I feel that's, like that's yeah. too much for He's going to have to call in help for that. Yeah. And then just one other moment that I liked and wanted to sort of point out was after the opening rampage of the poor dog and the poor cow Mm -hmm. you have the scene of megan burying the dog right i just want to say that i love the editing of that moment between megan burying the dog sort of faded with the helicopter shots of the mountains Mm -hmm. even if the Megan dialogue I thought was really cheesy. Yeah, yeah, it was cheesy. I, I mean, she was doing this like very melodramatic prayer, and then we see the dissolves uh, of. But I liked the dissolves. Yeah. The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want. But I do want. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. But they killed my dog. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. But I am afraid. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. But we need a miracle. Thy loving kindness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You exist, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But I'd like to get more of this life first. If you don't help us, we're all gonna die. Please, just one miracle. seeing this in the theaters in 1985 yeah. and 
as a young as a youngster i was even thought it was kind of cheesy myself so no it's a cool intro it's yeah. well done it's the the dissolves the superimpositions are cool and eastward and it's riding how you, up yeah it's yeah. how you lead into clint yeah so. and then speaking of those helicopter shots um this was shot in the uh, sawtooth mountains uh near sun valley idaho it's beautiful beautiful yeah i think eastwood used to ski there or maybe probably still does i don't know and that's where he discovered the locations makes sense um but yeah it's a beautiful location and it's well used i think the mountains are well used like he's like like i said earlier he's framed by a mountain mm-hmm. at the end of the street um, which i think is sort of an anthony mann type touch mm. the town was built there with exterior with exteriors and interiors so everything was practical so they could shoot inside and not have to shoot on a sound stage and i think that adds a lot to it it helps feels more authentic and and you know with the lighting you get the cross lighting in and and lots of shadows in those buildings and i agree and i liked how in some shots in the town you could see the reflection of the mountains and the other parts of town in the yeah, windows yeah and, and i feel like that's something you don't normally get in yeah you wouldn't get that movies. in a yeah something yeah. shot on a soundstage yeah um and bruce surtees was the dp on this um he had shot several other movies for eastwood before including uh high plains drifter and the outlaw josie wales and dirty harry the don siegel directed film um and i think in addition to the realistic sets it's a realistic cinematography style yes. and lighting like natural lighting. A, natu- a lot of natural lighting. Everything feels motivated. It's not like studio lights. And, and I really enjoyed the natural lighting. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a good looking film. Mm-hmm. It's Yeah, it's very nice uh, visually. And Eastwood, I think, generally likes to shoot his westerns in the fall or winter because you get a cross light. You know, the sun is lower on the horizon. It causes lots of shadows. And I think hmm. he, he likes that look. I didn't know that. Yeah. And just to continue talking about the crew, give a little background on uh, the co-writers Dennis Shryak, I think it's pronounced, and Michael Butler. Uh, Shryak also wrote Turner and Hooch. For, uh, <laughs> really? I didn't know that. For which he was paid $1 million, the highest price ever paid for a screenplay by Touchstone Pictures at the time. Wow. Uh, his first produced script was the 1969 comedic western The Good Guys and the Bad Guys, okay. directed by Burt Kennedy. Sure. Starring Robert Mitchum, George Kennedy, and Martin Balsam, mm-hmm. of which a New York Times reviewer said, whatever possessed these three actors to amble through such a dinky prairie oyster stumps wow. us. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> you don't good... want your Western called a dinky prairie oyster. <laughs> I've never heard that before. He and Butler also co-wrote the 1977 Clint Eastwood, Sandra Locke action movie, The Gauntlet. Mm-hmm. Shryak later became a literary agent and returned to his hometown of Duluth. Oh. <laughs> He's a Minnesota guy. Yeah, yeah I think um, Eastwood commissioned them to write this script, yeah. which was an unusual procedure for him. Normally, he would get a script or a treatment or something and then go from there. But I think this was the first time he ever had like a an idea of what he wanted to do and had someone write a script based on that. The two fellas, uh, two writers I know, uh, Dennis Schreck and Michael Butler, who wrote The Gauntlet, a film I did some years mm-hmm. back, uh, asked uh, if they could write one on spec uh, w- w- with me in mind, uh, would I be interested? And I said, yes, I think I'd be very interested. And so uh, we sat down and talked about what we'd like to see and kicked around some ideas, made some notes, and they came back with this particular story. And uh, we just polished it up a little bit. And then uh, I put it on the shelf because I, I had some other things to do over the last few years. And then finally, uh, decided this last summer I'd like to do it. You've also got the composer uh, Lenny Nyhouse working yeah. on this film, who's uh, another frequent Clint collaborator, yeah, a, of, yeah. a jazz <laughs> specialist, and that sort of plays into Clint's yep. uh, other love. Yes, <laughs> definitely a jazz lover. And Lenny, I think, uh, I think did the score 
part of the score to Unforgiven as well, mm-hmm. or the orchestrations, I think. I'm not sure how much Clint wrote of that. Should we talk about uh, the rest of the cast of this movie? Yeah. Let's start with uh, Michael Moriarty, who plays Hull, the miner uh, who invites Clint into his home after he rescues him from uh, LaHood's bullies in the opening scene, in the early scene. Yeah, uh, Moriarty's background, he was a Fulbright scholar who studied at the London Academy of uh, Music and Dramatic Art. Wow. And then worked at the famed Guthrie Theater in Minneapolis. Shout out to the Guthrie. I've been there many times. Really? And it's a fantastic theater. He was there for many years before breaking out in Bang the Drum Slowly in 1973. Oh, yeah, with De Niro. And then, yeah, and then winning a Tony Award in 1974 for the play Find Your Way Home. You may know him as uh, being a regular on early Law & Order mm-hmm. episodes, but he left the show after threatening a lawsuit against then-Attorney General Janet Reno, who said the show was offensively violent. He continued to accuse the producers and executives of caving, and he took, a fu- out, he took out a full-page ad in the trades calling on others to stand up with him against TV censorship. Wow. How- however... Uh, the executive producer, Dick Wolf, claims that they had to get rid of Moriarty because of, quote-unquote, erratic behavior. <laughs> he wow. then moved to Canada and declared himself a political exile. Really? Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. He was also in Larry Cohen's Cue the Winged Serpent. Yes, <laughs> where he displays some of his jazz piano skill huh? and makes me wonder whether he and Clint bonded Maybe over their so. jazz composing piano. Interesting. And then my other suspicion is that they're both 6'4". And maybe Clint thought he needed an equal standing that's, scene partner. That's interesting. This might be a conspiracy theory. But, <laughs> but no, but really, I mean, you see them and they're on equal footing. Yeah. I'm sure that doesn't happen a lot. That's with true. Being, both of them being so tall. Right, which I think is unusual Yeah, in Hollywood. Um, and I think it's also an interesting touch that you have this supernatural entity being on the same, the same level, level as... As the very mortal Hull. Yes, yeah. that they're both honorable good guys but one's a ghost (laughs) and i also just thought that he did some like great voice work like i feel like this isn't his natural speaking voice no already speaking voice in this film but it's like really breathy and i felt like realistic and captured the character sort of a rustic like a i don't even know what kind of accent it is but it just feels like a period voice that he's using i don't know that's something he learned in in london or right or some sort of theatrical training but it felt really real to me. Yeah, and I don't think I I feel like anything I've ever seen him in he has a different voice. Yeah. That. Yeah. Yeah, like looking at clips of Law and Order, it's like a completely different yeah. person. Yeah, there is sort of an authenticity to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see other members of the cast, uh Chris Penn, the younger brother of Sean Penn. Uh Eastwood would go on to direct his other older brother in Mystic River. Mm-hmm. Richard Keel, who uh everyone may know as Jaws from The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker is in it as a a thug, a giant thug who uh, sort of a friend's Eastwood, actually. Mm-hmm. Richard Dysart, another L.A. Law uh, guy, and also in The Thing, John Carpenter's The Thing. And Billy Drago, who's one of the deputies who people may know from The Untouchables as Frank Nitty. And then uh, Marshall Stockburn is played by veteran character actor John Russell, who was a, people may know from the TV series Lawman. He was the lead on that. Um, he's also in several other Clint films, uh, Josie Wales. Um, he was in Rio Bravo. He was like one of the main bad guys in that. He was in Yellow Sky with Gregory Peck. Um, so Western fans have may know him from other other projects. When I saw this movie back in '85, and I and I saw I didn't really know who John Russell was back then, but he looked like Lee Van Cleef to me, and I thought, oh, why didn't Clint cast Lee Van Cleef? That would have been so amazing. And it would have blown my mind. I completely independently had the exact same reaction yeah. when I watched that. This was my first time watching it. And I, 
kind of even wondered if it was Lee Van Cleef and I was right. just older and I didn't recognize him. Just didn't recognize him, him yeah. Because he has a similar look at this point. Yeah. I just thought that would have been a great way to kind of tie into his, his career to, you know, the Sergio Leone Westerns. But What was he doing? A, I don't know. I think he might have been on a TV series at that time. Come um, on, guys. Get it together. <laughs> Maybe they didn't get along. I don't know. I've never heard anything about that. I don't want to hear that. <laughs> but that would have been, I don't know, that would have been cool. But, I mean, yeah. uh, Russell is fine. Yeah, he's fine. Yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> It just would have been a nice moment, I think, yeah. to see Lee Van Cleef. Because it's also just another great Clint staring movie. Yes. You get a lot of uh, <laughs> squint with Clint Yes, moments. you do. There's a lot of moments where somebody says the wrong thing to him and he gives him a look. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, squint with Clint. Just like to talk about Clint's horse in this movie a little bit. Um, it's a great looking horse. Yeah. Um, a dapple gray. Um, he specifically asked for a gray horse to, you know, kind of symbolize the supernatural nature of his character i think this horse was an outrider at a racetrack in california and somebody spotted it and they brought it in for the movie so it was not a trained you know movie horse originally he wanted a horse that had star power and i think this horse uh, had it um, i would love to know what qualities <laughs> you, seek you seek in, in a, a horse a horse with star power <laughs> how do you cast a horse that's true. I don't know. Did you put it on tape? Yeah, I guess so. That's mm. funny. But he often asks for gray horses in his films. Um, High Plains Drifter, he rides a dapple gray. And then in Unforgiven, he rides a flea bit gray. Is it sort of like a muddle between black and I white, think, good I and think evil? I think it's, yeah, symbolizing the, the dual nature of his character. Yeah. I see what you're doing And he's there. like, yeah. But he's like a ghost, uh, you know, riding this gray horse. I think it's appropriate. Yeah. So I do think it's interesting, the element of the ghost story in this tale. And I wonder what you think about the supernatural elements entering into the Western genre. Because there are some other examples of that. Right. I think, yeah, I mean, it goes back a long way. There's the song and the film uh, Ghost Riders in the Sky. I think the movie's Riders in the Sky, which you have seen, but I've yeah, not. It's a Gene Autry. Yeah, Gene Autry movie. I saw it at the Autry Museum a while back. Yeah. Um, there's also a spaghetti western, uh, Django the Bastard, uh, relating to our last episode, uh, which is about a ghost sort of coming back to town. A lot of people thought High Plains Drifter was influenced by mm-hmm. that. Um, and then, of course, High Plains Drifter and this one. And then more recently, Cowboys and Aliens, Cowboys which I and think Alien. is pretty explicitly... Uh, mixing some genres there. Yes, definitely. But um, I feel like it does go back to sort of like cowboys around the campfire telling ghost stories yes, as well as yes. maybe some like Native American lore coming True. into play and just the the deep history of the West and all of its its many deaths and right. There's even, colorful characters. <laughs> there's even uh, Billy the Kid versus Dracula as a movie. Right, um, yeah. And uh, Buster Scruggs ends, the, the opening sequence ends with Buster becoming an angel and going off to heaven. I mean, that's sort of a ghost uh, thing there. I, I mean, know. Billy the Kid versus Dracula, though, I feel like is more an example of just, you've got one genre. Just a genre mashup. smush it together. Yeah. Which is a tactic to do, I think, in the moment. <laughs> I mean, Cowboys and Aliens, again, yeah, just to, right. to go back to that. But it's an interesting element in the Western, I think. Yeah, when I think it's more, more naturally seeped in like in pale rider i feel like that goes back to like a sort of mysterious frontier and it, and in, even though clint has said in interviews i think that he is a, definitely a ghost yes. in this, it's not explicitly stated oh, no. at all other than the fact that he has those bullet holes the scars from the bullet wounds and even high plains drifter you're not sure what his who he is or what his relationship mm-hmm. is you know he he appears and disappears at the opening and closings of the movie, but but other than that, you I mean, don't is know. he in High Plains Drifter? Is he like a ghost or is he like a demon or an yeah. angel or? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who's it... he? Who's he working for? 
Because unlike in, in Pale Rider, his character in High Plains Drifter is not good. No. He's... he's Vengeful. Yes, vengeful and, and awful, you know, character. And uh, whereas the preacher is is not that uh, that way. So this was, like I said, as I said earlier, Clint's uh, third Western as a director. He would do four total, unless he somehow surprises us and, and does one more <laughs> that he's not in, I would guess. But I, would, I think I would rank this fourth of the four he did mm. it's it's a good film I, i'm not trying to disparage it but i i feel like it's not quite i think unforgiven is great yeah uh i think josie wales is great mm-hmm. and i would rank high plains drifter above this okay. as well um i think this one's a little too traditional i think but it's a it's a it's a solid film the least interesting of the four he's directed the other ones sort of break more ground and... I th- yeah i think so particularly unforgiven yeah what, what did you think of this one uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how I rank them. I think Unforgiven is pretty, you know, universally agreed upon a a landmark movie. Yeah. I'm not sure I like Outlaw Josie Wales as much. Yeah, I, don't, I remember you didn't really respond to that one. And that, I think, Clint has said is his favorite of his films, yeah. actually. Maybe I'd rank it fourth and... Pale Rider above that one? Yeah. Hmm. But you, you liked High Plains Drifter? I think I did. Yeah. <laughs> We saw that a little while ago. We'll need ago. to rewatch. Yeah. yeah, that'll that'll come up later. Yeah. And then just a little bit of trivia to wrap this one up. Um, there is an episode of Rawhide titled "Incident of the Pale Rider," um, in which Clint's character Rowdy Yates kills a man in a in a gunfight, and then his double shows up on the trail herd later looking for a job as a as a drover, and uh, Clint doesn't know what to make of that. I've seen that episode a long time ago, but I don't really remember much about it. <laughs> Albert Salmi plays the the bad guy in that one. A great character actor. But otherwise, I think that's it for this one. So we'll be back uh, with our next episode. will be actually another Clint Eastwood Western. And I am excited for this one. <laughs> Hopefully you guys are too. But that's so long from me, Felicity, him, Clarence, and the spirit of Sheb Woolley. Adios. Rolling, rolling, rolling.